Tommy told me to do that. <laughs> um, so we have Acts 5, 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his right Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Good morning. Everybody all right? Everybody good? Had a good week? How many of you were here on Tuesday night? Some of you good? Okay, good. Um, just want to say, I'm really proud of you guys. I didn't get near as many angry emails as I thought I was going to get. And for the most, there was like some really thoughtful responses. And even if like you were uncomfortable with some of the material and, and how far he's asking us to go to make things right, um, by and large, a lot of people thought deeply about it for, for the last few days. And I thought that was great. Thank you very much. Um, on top of that, we've been having some great conversations as a governing board and as an elder team um, about these topics and what we can do ourselves to help create more evenness um, um, repair some of the, uh, the uh, social economic distance um, as a church. Um, and one of the things that, that we are planning on doing, you had, the, you had the, um, the opportunity to meet Michael Neely on Sunday. He was up here with me, um, pastor of, uh, of, of New Millennium. It's, uh, it's one of our sister churches, an African-American church. Um, they, um, he's been a pastor there for a good 15 years or so. Um, and he's been a good friend of mine for a lot of years. We go to two conferences sort of a year together, and we always hang out together and talk and get lunch and stuff. Um, we're having lunch with him on Tuesday. His church that he's been the pastor of for 15 years has fallen into incredibly hard financial times. They're many, many months behind in rent. Um, there's no way they're going to catch up. Um, and they're going to lose their meeting space and everything. And so we're in talks right now, and, and what, we're, what we're doing is um, we've decided to share this space with them. Um, as, a as a church, um, we're meeting with them on Tuesday to figure out what this looks like. Um, they're asking if, you know, Sunday's at 1.30 as we're finishing up and they can just come in and pick up where we left off and, uh, and, uh, and have their service here as well. So um, we're looking it's as early because they're in sort of dire, dire straits and they need, uh, um, they need to get out of that. And so we're going to let them, we're going we're gonna to bring them in. Um, we're not going to charge them anything. It's going to be just... Um, a blessing to them so they can use that money to, to help the community um, that they're serving. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be great. Um, just little steps towards um, creating a bit of evenness in a world that is so bent on creating unevenness. Um, so, um, with that being said, moving forward, um, you will, you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you updated on what's going on. But all the, I think the only thing that will change with us is we'll do our best to to keep the place nice and clean. Don't leave your garbage out and create a nice, clean space for them. And, and 
let them feel like this is their own church as well. Um, and uh, again, we're meeting Tuesday to talk to them about all the details and the logistics of it. And uh, um, there was something else, but I don't remember what it is. If it comes to my mind in the middle of my sermon, I'll be sure to stop and let you know. Um, it probably will. Um, okay, so this is our passage today. Again, last week we... Um, we covered this passage already in one aspect. We covered the, the sins of Ananias and Sapphira and what exactly the offense was. Today, we're going to cover the other aspect of it. They died. What the heck? Like, how is that a thing that is okay? What are we supposed to make of this? Um, what does this say about Jesus? What does this say about the church? And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, and believe it or not... Um, we're going to get to this passage only briefly in the last like 10 minutes of this sermon, okay? Um, because there's a lot of work to be done. Because I want to give you sort of the gift of perspective. I want you to understand how we should read the Bible. I get so many questions about, um, especially for those of you who have started reading the Bible every year and going through it, three pages a day should do it. Um, and, uh, and you, you know, you start books at the beginning, but at the beginning of the Bible, there is a lot of violent stuff, crazy stuff that we're trying to make sense of and say, this is God, this is who this is. Um, so that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we understand God, uh, in the light of violence of the Old Testament and, and then in the light of what we see in Jesus and the complete, it seems, opposite person, um, what do we do with this? And that's what we're going to talk about. Hopefully today you can walk away with a, a bit of a, um, an understanding of how to read the Bible in this sense. Um, so let's pray. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of work this morning. Get your little thumbs ready to scroll for miles. Um, and we're going to be everywhere, all over the scriptures from beginning to end. So uh, let's pray and let's jump into this, shall we? Father, thank you for this place, these people. I ask that you would join us here, uh, come over us. I ask that you would um, fill us with your spirit, allow us to not just have knowledge but wisdom. Help us to discern how we are to understand the writings of your ancient people, of our brothers and sisters that went before us. Help us to gain um, their perspective, their understanding. Um, let me speak freely and clearly. Allow me to uh, remember the things that I've studied and, and communicate them well. Allow all of us to receive these things together and try to grasp what this means for us as a community. Thank you, Father. Um, pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start um, by sort of trying to give you a center of all theology. Um, it sounds like a, a huge thing, but it's really quite simple. Um, I want to sort of give you a place to jump off from for everything else you're doing. And it's, it's, it's very simple. I'm going to put it out right here like this. Jesus is the exact representation of God. I know you've heard this before. I talk about it all the time. I think it's one of the most important things to understand when you're reading the Bible. Jesus is the, the, the full, exact representation of God. Sometimes we will use language like, well, Jesus is God. But when we use this language, um, it's, it's complicated because when we say Jesus is God... Oftentimes, we already have all these presuppositions about what God is, and we're taking Jesus, and we're cramming him into that. And we're making Jesus a part of all kinds of other presuppositions that we have. I think the better way to look at it is to simply say God is like Jesus. God is Jesus. Um, when you think of God, you must wipe away all of your preconceived understandings about who God is and replace them with Jesus. No matter where you are in the text, no matter what church you're gathering, this is how you should understand God. And from this place, you can then begin to build from a foundation of your spiritual house, your theological structure of your life, 
should be centered on the idea, though, that Jesus is the exact representation of God. Where does this come from? Um, this comes from uh, lots of places, but I think the most sort of explicit place it comes from is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Um, this is how all of this works. Now, <clears throat> the problem comes when we read the Bible and we see some things that don't seem to align with the things of Jesus. And so let me explain this a little bit. When we, um, we, when we talk about God, oftentimes we have this human understanding of God that is down low where we are. And we understand God in specific ways and we use specific phrases and specific ways of talking about God. Um, but above all of that, we know there is an actual true, full understanding, like nature of God, that God is, um, that we have a hard time fully grasping. And so while we have a human understanding of God, and, we, and, and with this, we bring all our projections of our own culture, um, our own sort of history, our own faith traditions, and we project all of them onto God. So we have this understanding, but flying way above all that is a, an actual true God with a, with a, a, a nature and a, a character um, and a voice and a being and a way of dwelling in the world that we have a hard time fully grasping. Now, what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is saying is that when Jesus came, we were operating from a human understanding of God, but when Jesus came, he suddenly elevated that and gave us a full view of what God is like, of what exactly um, God's attributes are, how God moves throughout this world. And so the point of Jesus was to take us from a human understanding of God and elevate us to a true nature of God. Now, the fact that I'm saying this means specific things about the Bible. You can probably look at this and say, okay, I think he's saying this about the Old Testament and this about the New Testament. Well, let's talk about that. In the Old Testament, in the ancient scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, um, they're talking about God from a pre-Jesus place. They don't have the full revelation of God, of who God is. They have these interactions with God um, that certain characters have, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, Nathan, David, and, and they're taking sort of, they're, they're writing this stuff down and they're telling their people, here's what I know about Yahweh. Here's how he is different. Here's how we tell our Genesis story that is different from all the other Genesis stories. Here's how we tell, how we tell our Exodus story um, that gives us an identity of who we are and who our God is in this world of other gods, right? They struggled, first off, they did struggle with polytheism. You see all over the scriptures, they are constantly being lured away to worship other gods. But we look at it and we say, hold on, we're monotheists. Now we are. Up until this point of Christ, it was very, very difficult for God's people to maintain a monotheistic worldview. Um, and so when they talked about God, they had this human understanding of God. And, and with that came a lot of projections. There were predetermined notions about who God was. Um, these predetermined notions came uh, I mean, they start right at the beginning with Abraham. Abraham is saved out of ancient Mesopotamia where he already has understandings of the gods and how they function and how they work. Um, and you can't just rip all this out of your brain. This comes with you and you project them onto your God, Yahweh. Um, there are also, so there's cultural projections as well, as well. These cultural projections include things like tribalism. Every tribe existed for themselves. Every tribe was geographical, had their own way of life and had their own beliefs and their own geographical gods. And they believed that um, 
their gods ruled over this particular place, but they also believed that their gods wanted to destroy the other gods so that their God's kingdom could spread and spread and spread. This is a tribal understanding of the world. Each and every tribe for themselves against the other tribes. Um, on top of that, every ancient Near East person had this idea that the gods were warriors. Every one of them. There was no concept that they were just simply creators and beings and loving beings. The loving idea of a god was absolutely foreign to the ancient world. Um, the warrior gods were, were how the people viewed everything. And they believed when they drew their swords and they got with their armies and they charged into battle. Um, and then the other, the other armies coming at them, they believed that above them in the heavens, their God was also doing battle against the other gods. And th you can see this kind of language in the scriptures. When I go to war, he is there with me. He is before me. He goes before me. God is doing battle. You can see this everywhere. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see the tribalism, um, you can't unsee it. It is there. Um, and so from, from base level, they were working with this human understanding of God in a pre-Jesus world. But the thing is, from the very, very, very beginning, from day one, there starts to be these little breakthroughs of God saying, here's a bit of me that you didn't know. Here's a little more of me that you didn't know. I call it um, progressive revelation. Like, Here's a little more of me. You didn't understand this yet, but now you can. And here's a little. And he's sort of dropping breadcrumbs along the way to lay out for you who I am. I am Yahweh, and I'm different from other gods. And you can see this right at the beginning. In the book of Genesis, you go to chapter 22. I'm sorry, I think it's behind the drum set. But uh, Genesis 22, it starts off with this foreign idea of a tribe to bless other tribes. No one had ever heard of this. Tribes existed to kill other tribes, or at least to partner with them to destroy bigger tribes. Um, this is how it works. But in Genesis 22, you see God saying, I will make for myself out of you a tribe that will bless all nations. And every nation will be thankful that you exist, because I am your God, and I am a good and loving God. And all of the world will sing your praises that you exist. And it will, it will end up bringing peace to the whole world through you. You will be a blessing. Something about your tribe will bring peace to the rest of the world, every other warring tribe. The second thing we see is God begins to do away with their sort of pagan rituals that are wildly unjust and usually pretty violent. Um, and so you have in Genesis 22, God kind of wakes Abraham up in the morning. He says, hey, I want you to take your son, your only son. I want you to put him on a donkey, and I want you to go to the top of Mount Ararat, uh, to Mount Moriah, and I want you to uh, I want you to sacrifice your son there on top of that mountain. Take your knife. You're gonna cut him. You're gonna bleed. You're gonna you're gonna drain the blood from his body, and you're gonna burn your son's body on the top of this mountain. And we read stuff like this, and we're like, what in the world? And then we see Abraham actually saying, okay, and he gets up and he takes his son. And he loads him on the donkey. And he takes him to the top of the mountain. And his son's like, hey, dad, where's the sacrificial animal? He's like, uh, don't worry about that. And they get to the top of the mountain, and he ties his son up, and he lays him on the altar, and he gets a knife, and he holds the knife up really high, and suddenly an angel jumps in and stops him. And he says, we're not doing this. No more of this. No more of this human sacrifice stuff. Uh, I have provided a sacrifice. And God moves sort of what every ancient tribe and every ancient religion had always taken part in, God casts that super far away from him and says, you can sacrifice animals. That's what you can do. There's one right here, a ram caught with his horns in the thicket. Go take it and, and sacrifice it there. Um, and so right off the bat, God begins to intervene and reveal little bits of himself 
throughout Scripture about who he is. Beyond that, you start reading, and you see these prophets entering in and revealing to us little bits and pieces of the true nature of God. Um, you have Amos coming in while the people are offering more sacrifices. And he says, by the way, I don't even want your sacrifices. This is the message of God. I'm tired of you spilling the blood of all these animals that I've created. I don't want your sacrifices. I want mercy and justice to flow, not blood. I want, I want goodness and, and, and righteousness and, and absolute justice and mercy for your fellow people. That's what I want from you. Um, and then you have, you have um, Nathan and you have Moses and you have um, Ezekiel and Isaiah who start talking about one day all of this is actually going to change and all of this is going to end and, and the, the temple is going to be known in a whole new way and then the law of God is going to be known in this whole new way and the, um, I mean, the, 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 the whole thing, the covenant with God is going to be different. You're going to have a whole new way. God is going to dwell in his people in a different way that he has never dwelled among his people um, ever again. The altar is going to be different. Everything is going to be different and you're going to actually have a new king, a whole new way of being. He says, all of this one day is going to change. And looking back now, we see what this meant. But in their day, they had no idea. They just had these glimpses and pieces that they were looking at, okay? So when I'm talking about the Bible, I want to get you into my head. Here's how I'm viewing the text. Um, Jesus splits the whole thing in half, and Jesus takes us from a human understanding of God in the Old Testament uh, with bits and pieces of God's true identity sprinkled in, right? Like, you can't, here's the thing about progressive revelation, you have to do it slowly. You can't just take people from zero to a hundred. They will reject all of it. it will, they will have such a struggle understanding this. Um, if you want to help a homeless person, you can't just help by giving them a home. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. There's bills to be paid, there's repairs to be done. You must take them from zero to one and then 1.5, and then 2, and then 2.5, and then 3, until you work them up to the place where they are restored to a place where they rightly can receive this gift. This is what God is doing, bringing them to a place where they can rightly receive the gift of God's full revelation to them. And so when we read the Old Testament, we're reading one way of understanding God. When we read the New Testament, we're reading another way of understanding God. Now, all of this is summed up by the writer of Hebrews, whoever she was, um, it's my joke. It's my inside joke. I think Phoebe wrote it. I'm sorry. Look. Okay. Hebrews 1. It starts off, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the universe, the exact representation of His being. He's talking about Jesus, not the universe. Um, I guess I should put less ellipses and add more text. Anyways, um, so there's a phrase here um, that you can see right in verse 1 uh, where it says that he spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. It's a Greek phrase and it's, it's polymeros kai, polytropos polai, um, and it means at many times and in many ways God spoke. But if you break down these words even a little more, poly means many, and then there's these uh, additions. Uh, meros means fragments, Tropos means fashion. So it's the word, it's many fragments, bits and pieces. It's like you, you have this cloth that, that had writing and it's been taken all apart and you're sort of putting it back together. Uh, and many fashions, many appearances, many different ways of, of seeing this thing, of wearing this thing, of, of looking at this thing. Many fragments, many fashions. But Jesus, in Jesus, all of these bits and pieces come fully together and now we can fully see, which is why... 
when we look at the Old Testament, God's people are relatively violent. But suddenly with, with the appearance of Christ, God's people are suddenly absolutely nonviolent. What in the world happened? They came to realize that God is like Jesus, not like other gods. And so the problem is, or um, the problem is that certain traditions in which we are raised fill your brain with other ways of reading the text. The way that I was taught to read the text is pretty much like this. Um, God's true nature is revealed from the very beginning to the very end, um, all the way through, um, with never a, a break in understanding. Um, that God in the Old Testament is violent and he's angry and he's retributive. He's regularly flying off the handle and wiping out hordes of people. Um, but suddenly Jesus, you see, he's loving and he's merciful and forgiving. Um, and so what we do rather than sort of understand that Jesus is the full revelation as opposed to Moses having the full revelation. By the way, on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is why this is so important. You have Jesus appears in all white and you have, you have um, Moses and, and Elijah and they're there. And what they're doing is they're pointing to Jesus saying, it's no longer about us. You now look to him if you want to know what God was like. This is how the apostles understood this. Um, but what we do is, and what I did, is you take this entire story of Genesis to Revelation all the way through, and you take every attribute of God, and you treat them all equally, and you lay them all up, and you say, God is. He's violent, and he's angry, and he's retributive, but he's loving, uh, and he's merciful and forgiveness sometimes, sometimes, um, except in the afterlife. Uh, and then, and then, but by and large, God is, is pretty abusive. I mean, the relationship is between him and humanity, if you take the whole thing, it's, it seems rather, we would define that today if someone else is in this relationship as abusive. So this is how I sort of understood God growing up. Um, and what happens is you end up with these, with these statements. I heard one the other day and I read it and I wrote it down and I forgot to bring it this morning. Um, but let me get this right. It was, um, it was a very popular um, pastor. I, I say it's, it's Dr. Paul Washer. And he said, um, his, his exact words were, uh, let me get this right. Um, God, hold on. I, I got to get this right. I don't want to get this wrong. Okay. God sent himself to save you from himself for himself. And it tweets, right? You're like, yo, that tweets. Um, <laughs> look, yes, it's, 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 it's easy to say God, God sent himself to save you from himself. But let's pause there. Jesus is saving you from God? Is that what's happening? Is that really how the apostles thought things were happening? I understand that that's how most of the American church understands it. But is that how the apostles thought? Look, um, and I've heard, I've heard, honestly, a lot of guys I grew up reading, John Piper says the exact same thing. Um, and when I read, like I've read Calvin's Institutes, um, it's about 1,500 pages, but nowhere in this 1,500 pages of Calvin's Institutes, nowhere does he ever mention 1 John 4, 8 or 1 John 4, 16, which are both about the fact that God is love. He gets to those passages and he, and he leaps over them and he keeps rolling. And he will not talk about them because he, he does not believe that that is the center of theology that God is love. In fact, you can test this. Most of us have been raised in this tradition. If you go on Facebook or Twitter today um, and you post, God is love, period. And you just leave it like that. Pretty quickly, somebody will chime in and say, but 
God is also this other thing that completely negates your sentence. And they will do this because we have a hard time with the fact that God is love. We have a hard time with the fact that the church father is fully accepted, which is what God is, love. Um, For many Western theologians since the medieval period, God is love is not the center of all theology. It is that God is righteous and powerful. Why? Because it matches the cultures in which we, are, we were living at those times when the king was considered fully righteous and powerful and his way went. Um, it, is, it is God is righteous and powerful. And what's more is that, that we ourselves have a hard time today with love being the center of our theology and with Jesus being the center of our theology, because we'd much rather have the cross be the center um, than, than the life and the teachings of Jesus and his resurrection. And it's not even that we want, we want Jesus' death at the center, which was a loving thing. We want the cross at the center. We want the cross without Jesus on it. Pay attention to different denominations and how they display the cross. There are certain denominations that maintain at the center of their theology that God is love, and so they have Christ on the cross. And then most evangelical Protestant denominations have an empty cross, It's just the cross. Um, And then I believe our Greek Orthodox brothers and sisters, they center on the empty tomb, the resurrection, that that there is hope. And so we're all sort of emphasizing like these different kind of things, um, depending on how sort of we have been raised. Um, But basically the whole point of this sort of mini monologue here that I have for you, here's what I want you to understand. And this is going to sound controversial at first, but I want you to think about this for at least a couple of days. All descriptions of God in the Bible are not equal. God, uh, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. This is the message of the writer of Hebrews. That is what they want you to know, as hard as it is to accept. Not every random person in the Bible, who, like Melchizedek coming out of the wilderness, his thoughts on who God is are not equal to Jesus. And this is what the early church understood. And this is what we have such a hard time understanding because deep down inside, we have a lot of people that we don't like and that we think should pay and we want the whole thing to be the same. We want to take Jesus and force him into these other things, these projections that we have. But the author of Hebrews is wiping the entire thing away. And by the way, not just him. John does this. Paul does this. Wiping it away and saying, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We have not always known that God is like Jesus, but now we do. And that is it. It's the center of the whole thing. That is my theology, and that's where I'm coming from. Um, and so, if Jesus is what God is all, has always been like, then it is important for us to notice how God responds in light of Jesus to those who have rejected him in the text. Because here's the thing. The New Testament church didn't actually have New Testaments. They had the Hebrew Bible. They had the Old Testament. And what they did was, for the first 300 years or so, the vast majority of them are reading the Old Testament in light of Jesus. They're not reading Jesus into the Old Testament. They're reading the Old Testament in light now of what we actually know about God. Because Jesus changed their entire perspective of God. They didn't even know God was Trinity until Jesus. They're forced to reckon with this. It changed their entire view. Nobody in the Old Testament grasped this. There's a couple times where it appears that they, they seem to grasp it like Jesus is like two in one, Father and Spirit. But it wasn't until Jesus that they understand it's three. God is a full-on community. And, and that's 
why we have been created to take part in the community of God. Like, the whole thing changed. Um, and so, what do we do about God's discipline? How does God discipline, even in the Old Testament, in light now of Jesus? And how did the early church and the apostles understand this? And this is what we're going to do. So, um, the first thing that I want you to see, I'm going to try to move through this pretty quick. Um, I'm going to give you some simple thoughts on it, and I'm going to give you a resource that you can read on your own time, or maybe as a house church. Um, the first thing that we can see when we read through the scriptures is a repeating principle of what theologians call redemptive withdrawal. Redemptive withdrawal is a simple idea. It's the idea that God's judgment comes in the form simply of removing his presence. Um, do you know why it is illegal to leave your little kids at home by themselves? Do you know why? They will kill themselves. Not on purpose. On accident. Most of parenting, up until about age 10, is just every day keeping your kids from killing themselves. And they're, it's crazy. They're running by, and you're like, you're grabbing knives out of their hands, and you're, you're, they're climbing things in the house and jumping off, and you're like, got one, here you go. And you're just on the phone, like, this is what you're doing. They're climbing out of their car seats and like flying to the front of the car when you hit the brakes, and you're like, what, uh, yeah. how did you figure out how to do that? My sister taught me, oh my gosh. So you're just trying to keep them alive. Twice we've kept our kids from plummeting over the railing at the mall. Like, how often have my kids, like, I would like, I saw online one time, and I fully agreed with this. Somebody said, I think when you die, God should show you the top 10 times you almost died. <laughs> I'm going to sit my kids down later today and tell them what I think are their top 10 so far. Um... You can't leave them alone. If you withdraw your presence from your children, it's not going to go well. They're going to die. They literally will die. Um, and here's the thing. This is how it is with people as well. We have neither the knowledge nor the wisdom nor the strength to dwell on our own. We need guidance. We need the protection. We need the hand of God present upon us to speak into our lives and to tell us the way forward lest we destroy each other and ourselves as we have seen humans do for centuries now. Did you know the last century that we just came through um, that ended in, in 2000 was the most violent um, century in all of human history? I know you think that like we've progressed so well and science and technology and all this has made the world more peaceful. That was the by far the most violent century that has ever been. More people died at the hands of other people in that century. Um, now, when you read the scriptures, there are at least 20 or 25 passages where this is laid out. I'm going to lay a couple for you, a couple of them for you out now, not 20 or 25. Don't worry. I got like three and then like a church father who's like, yup. Here we go. Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.17. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. Yes, God cares about the destruction of animals as well. Uh, Psalm 7.16. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Yes. Um, when God withdraws himself, oftentimes um, the people are simply reaping what they sow. The violence that they lay out comes out on their own. Origen understood this, uh, second century church father, and he writes this. He says, every, skilled, uh, every sinner kindles for himself the flame of his own fire, and it is not plunged into a fire which has been previously kindled by someone else, nor which existed before him. He says, you are digging your own um, and planting your own 
uh, reaping that you will come upon you every single day with your life. If you open up Psalm 7 a little farther before chapter 16, uh, verse 16, it says, whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Uh, whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit that they have made. This is a constant principle, and when we look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ, this is what we see. Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says, um, he says, and because they did not want to follow God, he gave them up to the things that they wanted so that they could experience what it was like to not have the Spirit of God to guide them. This is the message of, of Genesis. There's two trees, and you're standing between them both, and um, both of them are going to teach you about the love of God. And it's your choice how you're going to learn it. You can eat directly from the tree of life, from God, and you can, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. Or you can go the other direction, and you can eat from the knowledge of good and evil. You can get to know everything about everything, and you are eventually what you're going to learn through all your pain and suffering is that God is good. It's the same lesson on two different paths, two different ways of moving forward. Now, the second principle that we have uh, when, we, when it comes to understanding God's discipline in our lives. Uh, the first one is redemptive withdrawal. The second one is very simple. It's restorative justice. And that is the idea that God is not punitive. God is restorative. God's judgment is not punitive. It is not meant to make you feel the pain. It is intended to restore you and lift you out of it. That pain is meant to teach you about the path that you have been on, and to put you on another path. This is what you, you can read through, all about this, all through Ezekiel, all through the Psalms, all through Zephaniah, Exodus, and a lot more. Isaiah uh, chapter 19 goes into a lot of detail here. He says, I will, I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord Almighty. And so what he's saying is, oftentimes God will just let go and let people choose their own world leaders, because by choosing their own king, um, they will oftentimes get exactly the king that they deserve, and God's judgment upon that nation is actually to be ruled by the person that is ruling over them. Moving along. In verse 20, But when they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, and he will rescue them. So what he's saying is, he says, yes, I'm going I'm to stay back, and I'm going to watch them endure what they are enduring. And, and it goes into great detail that he has compassion, that he's mourning, and, and he's, he's, he's weeping. Isaiah later describes him as just absolutely um, gutted and bawling, watching his children walk away from him, and he just lets them go. Um, and he says, but the moment they call out to me, I'm there. The very moment they realize what they have done and the guidance and the presence that they have lost, I am there for them. Ezekiel says, I stood at the temple and I watched because of the way the people were living, because they're supposed to be the representation of God's people, but the world looks at them, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, all, they look at them and they don't recognize God. And so God says, look, you're making me look terrible. You're making me look like other gods. They think, they think I'm like you. And so God leaves the temple and lets them become what they're going to become. Now, Ezekiel, Ezekiel just says, God is weeping over this. And then shortly after, they entered into, into exile and pain and suffering, slavery. Um, this is the progression you find all through the scriptures. Um, and by the way, if you want to read more about this, there's a book um, by a professor at my seminary, Gregory Boyd. Uh, uh, the book is called Cross Vision. Uh, that's a terrible title. But um, anyways, it's about, it makes sense. It's about how to read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Jesus, and understand the violence in the Old Testament and what it reveals about, uh, um, about um, the love of Jesus. Um, so I highly recommend this. Um, a classmate of mine uh, and a friend of mine named Deacon Godsey, he wrote a, 
a study guide with Gregory Boyd to go with this book. Now, this book, Cross Vision, is, is a condensed version of a 1600 two-volume set that he wrote called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Um, you don't need to read that. This is a short version for everyone, okay? Um, it's super easy to grasp and understand. And then, and again, there's a, there's a study guide to go with it. So if you want to do this as a house church, I highly encourage that, uh, maybe next time around. But anyways, the whole point of this is that the New Testament Christians, because of the revelations of Jesus, changed their mind about how God displays his anger and his wrath. They changed their minds about how they, um, they no longer saw God as violent and punitive. They saw God as loving and God's judgments, not as punitive, but as redemptive and restorative. The whole point of it was to bring them back. So God's judgment upon people is never just, you've done bad, suffer, suffer, suffer. It is always, you're going down the wrong path. I'm going to back off and let you experience this so that you come back to me. God's actions are restorative, always. Now, um, as we move towards today's passage now, um, that, that's the introduction. Just joking. We're almost done. Um, um, here's the thing we need to understand. Luke is building this dichotomy. He has been from the very beginning. Luke is the author of Acts, by the way, in case you missed our early services on Acts. Um, Luke starts off saying the church is different, the New Testament is different, the followers of Jesus are different than we were as just following Yahweh disembodied because we now understand that the temple is something else. We now understand that um, the law is something else. The temple is not a building. It's God's people. The altar is not stones that we lay dead things on. The altar is, is the feet of the apostles, and it's, it's for the good of the church. Um, and so we sell our property and put our money down and, and take care of the people when we need to do so. Um, we understand all these new things, that it's no longer a Torah, a piece of paper of law that we follow, but now it's, it's, it's the Spirit of God within us, and we follow the Spirit of God, not written things. We follow the Spirit of God. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. But on top of that... Um, Luke is now also separating the old ways of understanding God's judgment in the world from the new in this passage. And the main reason it's hard to see is because we are projecting onto the text things that actually are not there. And I'm going to point those out to you. So Luke is starting with a simple sort of idea. Um, in the Old Testament, from Sinai to the Second Temple, there was this reverence for, for, for holy things. Now, holy things were very specific things. Um, and you handled them the right way. The, these, these holy things were always sort of physical. It was, it, was, it was very material kind of things. There were, the temple was holy, the altar was holy, the, the vestments that the priests wore were holy, um, the basin that they washed the things in uh, was holy. The, the Ark of the Covenant, you've seen Indiana Jones, but between the two, the angel wings, that thing was holy. The reason these things are holy, there's even a, a room inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. Like all the things that are holy, this is the holiest thing. Um, and you use the word so much sometimes that it loses all meaning, right? Holy, holy. Okay, so the, these, these holy things, what made them holy was that the presence of God dwells there. That's what made them holy. And that's it. No other reason than the fact that they were in God's house, it's where God lived. It's God sat on the, on, the, on the mercy seat, which was between the Ark of the Covenants. God lived in the middle of the Holy of Holies. God, uh, Mount Sinai was considered holy. And if you touched Mount Sinai, you were threatened with death. Like, don't touch Sinai, you will die. That's like Leviticus, I think, 16. Um, because God lived on top of Sinai, so you don't touch Sinai. So there's all these tangible physical things, materials, that you can't touch because they're holy. To touch these things means you die. 
To handle them wrong, you die. To flippantly approach them, you die. That is the punishment for all of it. Now, um, you can see a lot of this in uh, all through the Old Testament, and you can see bits and pieces of it shifting and changing as we get into the book of Acts. For instance, what Luke is doing when he tells the story of Ananias and Sapphira is he's referencing linguistically, using the language that he's using. He's using words that are only found in really two other Old Testament stories. And the early century Jews, this is what they would do. You would randomly just mention something uh, that, would, that would bring your mind, the, the listener's mind, to an Old Testament passage, to an Old Testament story. And, and what you're saying is the answer is in this story, and that brings that story into view. Luke is doing this. There's two things that Luke is referencing in the Greek that he's using when he writes this book. Um, one of these things is, is Leviticus chapter, uh, chapter 10. There's this story of, of the sons of, I believe they're the sons of Aaron. I forget. Yeah, sons of Aaron. And they are offering sacrifices in the tabernacle. And apparently they do it wrong. It says they brought the wrong kind of fire. They, had some, they did something wrong. They didn't follow the instructions explicitly. And there's this explosion that kills them when they're bringing fire into the Holy of Holies. Um, and here's what it says. It says, Aaron's sons, oh yes, it's right there, <laughs> Nadab and Abihu took their censers and put fire in them and added incense. They, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Doesn't tell us what that means or what happened or any of it. Um, unauthorized fire. You can't bring that fire here. Contrary to his command. And so the fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. And so the people understood this as God struck them dead because they mishandled the holy things. This became how they interpreted a lot, a lot of deaths. They mishandled, um, they mishandled the holy things of where God lived. There's another one of these that Luke is referencing through this language. Uh, and it's found in Joshua chapter 7. It says, um, it basically is telling a story about they had conquered a land and they had taken all of the things designated to be used in the temple in Jerusalem or in their tabernacle, and they, and they put them in a big pile. These are things made of gold, really fine things that are going to inhabit the temple where God lives in God's house, right? And there's this guy, Achan, who sees them, and he's like, that's some nice garments. Oh, look at the silver stuff. Look at the gold. And nobody's looking, and he takes some of it, okay? Here's what it says. The Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan took some of them. I coveted them, and I took them, he says. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent, which, uh, with the silver underneath. And then all Israel, they pull him out of his house, and they stone him and his family. These are God's people um, issuing capital punishments simply because he mishandled the holy and sacred things where God lives. So, when you read the Old Testament, this is what you see all throughout it. Now, um, what you see in the book of Acts shifts this and changes our understanding of it. And you have to see it. Okay, here you go. Um, so once again, we have the holy things in the book of Acts. You have Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a plot of land. They're very wealthy. They sell a plot of land and they bring this money because there's people who are starving, people who are in need. And he holds this money back and he doesn't give them all of it. And the reason he does this, go back and listen last week. It has to do with status. Um, it has to do with rising, lifting himself up, uh, above all the sinners in the church, making himself look better. And what he's doing is he's, he's treating everyone wrong. He's not taking care of those um, who need it. Um, and he's being flippant with the offering in the house of God, in the, the, the gathering of the church. So what you see is 
There are still holy things, but they are not a temple. They are not a tabernacle. They are not an altar. They are not the, the our holy of holies. They are not the Ark of the Covenant. The holy things that we now see in the, in the book of Acts are the people because the people are now where God dwells. And where, the peop- where God dwells is a holy thing that ought never to be mistreated or mishandled or taken advantage of or used for selfish gain like Achan or the couple who, uh, who, who, who brought the unauthorized sacrifice into the presence of the Lord. And so what we see is this shift from holy things being these objects to none of those are now holy, nothing, no physical, tangible things even matter anymore. What matters is where God dwells and where does God dwell in his people. I remember when I was a kid, I would walk into church. I went to a Grace Brethren church, um, and I would wear a hat, and I'd walk into the church, and these old men would yell at me for wearing a hat in the house of God. And looking back now, I realized just how illiterate and crippled that theology was, that somehow a building mattered to God, that somehow I could insult God by wearing a building, an an inanimate, inanimate object, into another inanimate object as if God lived here. This is the church. This is the body of Christ, me and you. No matter if we're here or if we're on the beach or if we're in houses, wherever we are, if we're in prison together, we are the body of Christ. We are the house of God, and where God dwells, Those are where the holy things are. And so they violated the holy things. When you read the passage, Ananias together with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge and he kept back part of the money for himself. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So now this becomes a battle of good versus evil. Okay? Um, And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now, Um, we have come to the place where we see the problem. Satan has so indwelled now Ananias and Sapphira's heart um, that they are now sort of an affront to the things of God. And it is now sort of Satan versus the Spirit of God in this particular argument right here. But what you see is judgments because those who violate the holy things must die. However, when Luke describes judgments, Notice what Luke is not saying as well as what Luke is saying because the way he describes the death of Ananias and Sapphira is vastly different than every other way that death is described throughout the Old Testament. He is very careful and specific to say this. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead and died. What does it not say happened? God didn't shoot fire out of the apostles' feet. The apostles didn't pick up stones and kill him. Luke is a doctor. The author of this book is a doctor, and he uses a word, a doctoral like medical term, uh, and the word is exuko. And the word ek means to breathe out. Suko is their word for life. Literally says, when he was confronted with the things that he had done, that he was filled with Satan, that he was now an absolute affront to the things of God. And he was exposed and dishonored for all to see. It says he, the life was breathed out of him, and he died. This is how it explains this. And I know you're hearing this. You're like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't sound. He is very explicit not to, to say God killed him or the people killed him. And if you read commentaries, even from the early church all the way up until now, Over and over and over again, this is pointed out as this turning point in the church 
where God removes their responsibility to kill evildoers, and he removes it off of them. And God says, and Jesus is the face of me, so I'm not doing this either. And what we have, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the presence of God is lifted. He's filled already with Satan as it is. Satan's filled his heart. He's evil from top to bottom. Satan is always, throughout Scripture, is considered the death bringer, the one that causes all of our pain, all of our death, all of our suffering. And it's almost as if God just, once again, just removes the last little bit of who he is. And he dies. This word is used all through uh, ancient writings to describe heart attacks. It's used to describe all kinds of ways in which people die. This is the only place it appears in the Bible, right here. This is fascinating. Um, this is a big deal. This is Luke changing what happens, first off, how we define holy things, and it's Luke also changing how we define the punishment for the violation of holy things. It's both. The early church fathers knew this and wrote about it. Um, Gregory Boyd, that author I mentioned earlier, he's written extensively on this passage. Um, he describes it like, look, the presence of God and the presence of evil in the world. He says it's sort of like gravity. Like when I let go of a ball, I don't need to push it down. I let go, it drops. And this is, how, and this is really hard to grasp and really hard to put your mind around. I, I absolutely admit that. But here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> this is how it was understood for every church father for the first 300 years and every desert mother of the church that existed. Um, not only that, it teaches us, what it teaches us is that there's now no warrants for anyone to extract a universal principle out of this passage and to argue that every death is a result of God punishing someone. And I've heard this. Some of you grew up in churches where someone gets sick and they blame it on their sin. Someone, someone dies and they say, well, they must have been full of sin because God would never allow this to happen. So God struck them dead. Um, it is true that all death is, in a sense, um, it is a punishment of God in as much as the entire creation has been subjected to futility. That's Romans 8.20. Um, that is, because of human rebellion, God has been withdrawn from all different places of the world. And so there is death and there is destruction when there, God is not present. But in the presence of God, which is where God, when God's people are present, then those people are supposedly supposed to be in the presence of God. We keep these things from happening. It is only when we withdraw. And Jesus several times even tells the disciples, if they won't receive you, withdraw. Just withdraw. Just let it go. Shake the dust off your feet, he says. Now, there's no grounds, basically, for applying this idea of punishing, of, of, of killing others for sin individually to others. This is why, right off the bat, Christians never supported capital punishment until very recently in church history. They did not support it. Um, Jesus teaches us, um, I mean, first off, did they sin? Yes. Did God judge them? Yes. And he obviously removed his presence from them. But did God strike them down? Luke is clear, no. Um, did God's people use capital punishment here? No. In instances where it would have been explicit before that they did. Jesus teaches that it is never our place to discern the hand of God in the way that people die. It is not our place to discern that. I don't cheer when terrorists are bombed. I don't. There was a human being made in the image of God, meant for a purpose, with a vocation. Of course, the presence of God had been removed from their life, but we can bring that presence to them. 
This is what we are called to be, to the ends of the earth. We should, we should rather restrict our focus to our own lives, make sure that we are not heading down the same road as Ananias and Sapphira went down by pushing the giver of life away. And this is what we regularly do when we mistreat the place where God dwells, which is human beings, for our own gain. We must always respect what God has called holy. And the things that bear his image are holy. Remember Jesus standing in the temple with the coin with Caesar's face on it. And he says, he says, render unto Caesar's that which is his. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Then render unto God the things that are his. What bears the image of God? You do and I do and everyone outside these walls do. And so we render those things to God. They belong to God. It is not our responsibility to decide who lives and dies. We bring the presence of God into their lives and we serve them and we pour ourselves out for them as Jesus did on the cross and gave up all of his power and all of his status and all of his privilege to enter into our world, to enter into a relationship with you, even though you didn't deserve it. And it's beautiful and we are called to be this way. This is it. Why don't we take some time and go to communion now at this point. Um, our communion servers, you guys can go. Um, back to the elements and you can gather them and spread around the room. The communion table is the center of it all as well. It is, it is the common union of all of us. The common thing that sets us all together is the body of Christ has been broken for you. The blood of Christ has been poured out for you by the one who reveals to us the full explicit image of God. And so we gather and we come to the table and we look at a picture of who God is, body broken, um, the blood poured out for you, for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so I ask all of you, if you would take communion with us, come to the table as equals, each and every one of us. Um, uh, this is the evenness of the early church. This is, this is the, the, the communion table of fellowship. And so our communion servers are coming forward. You're going to come on up, spend some time in prayer, take, take the, go on up to the elements, take some of the bread and dip in the wine and eat it and um, spend some time in prayer and contemplation of all of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, <clears throat> I ask that you be present with us. Thank you for finally revealing yourself fully to us in your son. Um, I pray that we would wrap our arms around that, that we would make that the pinnacle image of what we are after in this world. Thank you, Father, uh, for Jesus. Help us to embody him ourselves, to be incarnational in this world as Christ in the flesh. We love you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus this morning.